All right, look with me, please. Philippians chapter 1. And last week, of course, a couple of weeks ago, actually, we concluded our study of working through this first chapter of Philippians. However, we are, uh, last week, we began looking at verses 20, verse 29 specifically, um, and verse 30 as well as it concludes the chapter. And we are looking there again this morning. I wanted to point out to you, if you recall with me, the importance of recognizing the gravity and the significance of what Paul is actually saying when he speaks about it has been given or granted unto you to suffer for the cause of Christ or for Christ's sake. And so we can easily read through this passage. We've already dealt with this to some degree, of course, but yet we can easily read through this passage and just skim over this statement that Paul makes without giving it the proper consideration that it obviously deserves to help us not only to, uh, to be prepared for suffering for the cause and sake of the gospel, but also that we might be aware of what is actually taking place if and when we do suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel, and to recognize, the again, the significance of the importance of what Paul is saying in this verse, especially in light of the entirety of the, the thesis statement and the theme of the epistle. And so look with me in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 29 and verse 30 is what we'll be reading this morning. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now remember, this is one of the four prison epistles which Paul has written. And so when he writes and says, you've heard this of being in me, it is in me, and you're aware of this, Then he's speaking, of course, the fact that he is in prison. He has already suffered for the cause of Christ and the gospel and will continue to do so. And he says, you've heard of this. And they hear it, of course, even being in the epistle that he's writing, but they've heard of it, no doubt, by other believers and some of the other epistles that may have been written. And so Paul has suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, will continue to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. And so he mentions in verse 30 that you now have the same conflict which you saw in me. So that which they had already seen Paul suffer through, now they are identifying in that same conflict as the church of the Lord Jesus. But also, he says, and you now hear of me. So he says, you've heard that I'm in in bonds, you've heard that I'm in suffering, and so all of this that is taking place, of course, is something that is, is to be expected and something in which you are identifying in Christ and his sufferings as am I. And so this kind of sets the groundwork, if you will, again, for our study as we continue this portion uh, in verses 29 and 30 of, of understanding this truth which Paul has stated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy and love, and you are good, and there's none good beside you. And we know, Father, as we've come together in this place this morning that there are no doubt needs that are represented, Lord, that there are many that are, are no doubt burdened and suffering even possibly suffering for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And as well, we know, Father, we do pray for these that have requested prayer and those of our loved ones, our friends, our family, uh, part of this church body that are sick, that are ill, recovering from sickness. Lord, we pray that you might just be merciful in bringing them to health, that they might come back together in fellowship with your people. And Father, that we ask that in all things you might receive the glory and the honor that you so rightly deserve. Even as we open the word of God this morning, Lord, may the very truth of your word, uh, may it permeate our hearts and our beings. May we contemplate upon these truths. May we, may we give our attention to them as they, as they deserve for us to do so. And Father, may you use this truth to continue to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ as you have purposed and, and determined it to do. And so we pray, Father, that we might be submissive in your hand, that we would have submissive hearts to your spirit. And Lord, where we... Uh, fall short, Father, in following after Christ. We pray that you might grant us, Lord, the grace and as well that we might rely upon your spirit and your strength to be committed followers of the Lord Jesus, that Christ might be demonstrated in and through our lives to your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week I pointed out to you from these two verses, Paul's, or from the, from the chapter and dealing with these two verses, I pointed out from the uh, beginning of this chapter, Paul's thesis statement, as we've done many weeks through our study of this epistle in chapter 1 and verse 10. And I pointed out that this is just as significant, this thesis statement is just as significant in relation to the last verses of this chapter, the two last verses, 
as it is to the previous verses of the chapter. Paul stated in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And again, the word judgment here is that of discernment. And then in verse 10, you find Paul's thesis for the entirety of the epistle when he says, That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I've pointed out throughout this time, of course, that that which is excellent the word excellent means superior, or that which, the superiority of that which he is speaking. And so he's saying that my desire is that you approve, that you acknowledge that which has been proven to be superior. And I told you in chapter 3, you find Paul's personal understanding and demonstration of this in his own life when he says this, that I count all things but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. And again, this is not talking about knowing Christ in salvation at the moment of the new birth alone, but it's talking about a continual growth and knowledge of who Christ is, all that Christ is, might we say. And so Paul is saying there's nothing more excellent. Everything else is refuse. Everything else is garbage. Everything else is inferior to the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. And so this is the thesis of the book, And this is just as much so important in relation to the last two verses of this chapter as it is to any other portion of this entire epistle. I explained last week as well again that suffering for the cause of Christ is clearly linked to the theme of the first chapter concerning, first of all, the fellowship of the gospel, as Paul declares it in verses 3 through 11. Second, the furtherance of the gospel in verses 12 through 26. And then third, the faith of the gospel in verses 27 through 30. And Paul mentions every one of these, fellowship of the gospel, furtherance of the gospel, and faith of the gospel within this first chapter. And then he concludes the chapter, if you want, I know the chapter uh, the chapter divisions and verse divisions were not present, of course, in the actual writing of Paul. We recognize that. Before our understanding, we reference them as we do because it helps us to categorize what is being stated. And so in the latter part of this chapter, this first chapter, as it has been divided for us in our translation, we see that Paul concludes with suffering. He concludes with the fact that they are now um, called not only to believe, but also to suffer for the cause of Christ, the sake of Christ, and as well, that, that same suffering in which he has been partakers, I've mentioned, they are now partakers, and that which they have heard that is in him, they are now partakers of that same form of suffering because it was all rooted in the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and the faith of the gospel. So you cannot disconnect these three truths Paul mentions and, and the meat of this in first chapter. You cannot disconnect the truth he is stating from the suffering which he mentions in concluding the chapter. The reason they were suffering is because of the gospel. That's the whole point. And so Paul is bringing this understanding to them. He declared again in verses 29 and 30. Let's read them again. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is declaring that to suffer for Christ's sake, in reality, in relation to the thesis statement of this chapter, verse 10, that you approve things that are excellent, that you acknowledge that you understand that which is superior to all that which is inferior. And here now Paul says that to suffer for Christ's sake, if we can use the term, is excellent. He's saying to suffer for the cause of the gospel is excellent. It is superior than to not suffer for Christ's sake. Now last week we examined Romans chapter 8 in which Paul explains suffering in general and more specifically suffering within the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 8 verses 16 through 30 because we're going to spend our time here in unpacking and other verses but specifically in this portion of scripture and unpacking the truth because because you must remember this the same Paul who wrote Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 is the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 8. And so when Paul mentions suffering, surely these are the things of which he is speaking. And he expounds more so on this truth in his epistle to the Romans than he does in his epistle to the Philippians, specifically in these these two verses in chapter 1. So in Romans chapter 8 verse 16 we read, beginning, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now remember, he's saying heirs of God. So we have received of God or from God. But then he says joint heirs with Christ. And these two prepositions are important. We are heirs of God, meaning God has given to us. We have received from him. 
but then joint heirs with Christ is saying something totally different. Or, or it, 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 it's, it's broader, or, or in a way more specific, but also broader than just being heirs of God or recipients of God. For instance, let me give you an example. Um, all men that are alive today have received the grace of God to live. All men that have ever lived have received the grace of God for nourishment, the grace of God for to have air, the grace of God in health. The goodness of God has been demonstrated to all men in that they have received of God life itself, those who have lived or are alive. However, that's different than being a joint heir with Christ. And so heirs of God means we've received of and from God, but joint heir with Christ means that we have received with Christ all that Christ has received of God. We are heirs with him just as he has received, so we have received. And here's the, the simplicity of this statement, is that we have received all that God has given to Christ because we have received Christ himself. And with, it is within Christ, as Ephesians 1, 3, Paul stated, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so being in Christ, receiving Christ, is to receive all the blessings of God in Christ. And that's how he can make the statement that we are joint heirs with Christ. But then he makes this statement also, if so be, we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So what Paul is saying here is that if we are not suffering, it's not, well, if you don't suffer, then you just don't get all the blessings. No, if you're not suffering with Christ, you've not received Christ. That's the point that's being made here. If so be that we suffer, that we might be glorified, because all those who are of Christ, of God in Christ, will be glorified by God in Christ in the end. But if we are not suffering, then we will not be glorified. And if we're not being glorified, it's because we never were part with Christ. And so Paul is making these conclusions here. He goes on to say, then verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to God or the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose." For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Even what Paul mentioned a moment ago, he now concludes in this verse. Notice, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. So if you are called, you will be glorified. So going back to what Paul previously stated here, if we suffer with him, it's not saying, again, you miss out on some of the blessings if you don't experience suffering. No, you've missed out on the entire blessing of Christ if you don't experience suffering because to know Christ is to also identify in his sufferings. So Paul is making that very clearly known here. In other words, suffering is part of the identity with Christ for all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. To be a recipient of the blessings of God in Jesus Christ is to also be a partaker in his sufferings. Paul explained to Timothy that the result of living a godly life in Christ is to suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And again, the word persecution here does not mean death by martyrdom, but it means that you will, be, you will, you will experience opposition, there will be conflict, there will be those who are opposed the truth in which you stand. There's not going to be just total acceptance, in other words, but there will be rejection and opposition to the truth of the gospel and your identity in Christ. So last week we addressed this question and answered this first question, which was, why does suffering exist? And I told you last week, the first 
the simple answer I said to you last week is sin, of course. But then there's two factors to consider concerning the answer of sin. First is that of original sin. The sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, which introduced sin into the world. Again, in, in, in what I believe uh, theologically, in, in what is referred to as federal headship, of course, Adam is a represent, we are represented in and by Adam, Adam's sin, and because we are of Adam's seed, sin is now passed on to us. The nature of sin, that is, is passed on to us. And the nature of sin being passed on to us makes us, therefore, sinners. And as sinners, we sin, and death is the result of sin. So then you have, second, not only original sin, but also actual sins. And, and this really just, it, it just stands to reason when you stop to consider it, that the reason we commit actual sins, which the actual sins theologically means the sins which men personally commit as descendants of Adam, but the point being that actual sins are sins that I am guilty of. I, I commit actual sins. You commit actual sins. But let us not be deceived. The only reason we commit actual sins is because of original sin. <laughs> we have a sin nature which is now passed on to us, hence we sin and commit actual sins. So at the completion of creation, we saw last week, the scriptures declare that God saw all he created was very good, Genesis 1.31. Sin and suffering are the result of man's sin in the Garden of Eden. After man had sinned, God declared judgment upon Satan, upon Eve, and upon Adam, or upon the ground for Adam's sake. Genesis 1, 14 through 19. Suffering, therefore, is an inevitable part, inevitable part of life due to original sin, and suffering can also be a direct result of actual sins or sins that we commit. In other words, we can suffer due to the consequence of our own sinful choices, our own sinful decisions, and our own sinful actions. But regardless, all men suffer due to original sin, for there's not one person who's ever lived, who has ever sinned, that does not die. Or do, if you say, wait a minute, because there was Elijah and there's Enoch, they were translated, but here's the thing, what they knew as life ended, and they were transformed into a new life, even in that. And the point is that, that men sin, therefore men die. And even when people die of other people's sins, because of other people's sins, there are those who die. It's not that they did something to deserve death at that moment per se, but they are guilty as fallen man nonetheless. And what's more is it's original sin, which is the result of their own death. And so death is a consequence of sin, which all men face. So this morning we will continue to examine Paul's explanation of suffering within his epistle to the Romans in light of Philippians 1, 29 and 30. And I want to remind you that although we are looking primarily at Paul's epistle of Romans regarding this matter of suffering, we are doing so with the intent and purpose that we might better understand the truth which Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said, verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. Notice what he's saying here. You are, you are joint heirs with Christ, he says in Romans, right? Now in Philippians, he says, he says, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him. So it's not only been given by God for you to believe on Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Having, the, having answered the question as to the origin of suffering in general last week, this morning we will focus more so on answering the second question concerning suffering, and that is that while suffering is universal in that all men will suffer, I think we've seen that. It's irrefutably explained and taught and, and, and demonstrated through the Scriptures. So while all men will suffer, it is universal, the cause or the reason for all suffering is not universal. Now, sin is the reason people suffer, original sin and actual sins. But what I'm saying to you is this, as a follower of Christ, there is a suffering now that is the product of identity in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we suffer for righteousness' sake, or we suffer for the gospel's sake, or we suffer for Jesus' sake, but yet again, let us understand, ultimately, this comes back to original sin. The reason we suffer for righteousness' sake is because sin is present in the world, and those who are in sin, those who embrace sin, those who practice lawlessness, hate the law. Those who practice lawlessness despise righteousness. 
And so Christ was despised and hated, not because he had sinned, but because he had not sinned. But it's those who did sin who hated the righteousness of Jesus. So sin or suffering is universal as much so as sin is universal, but yet the reason one suffers may vary. The reason, the cause is that of sin. We understand even in righteousness and for righteousness sake, the real root of suffering still goes back to sin because sinful men hate righteousness. Therefore, those who do righteously, those who live in righteousness, those who follow after Christ, those in whom Christ lives and manifests his life and his righteousness, therefore are hated by the world. Remember, Jesus told his disciples this very thing whenever he stated that if the world hate you, don't marvel that the world hate you. You should expect that. Why? Because it hated me first. And if it hates you, the only reason it's hating you is because you are reminding them of me because I am living in you and my righteousness is being demonstrated through you. So the scriptures teach us that as followers of Christ, we will suffer for his sake. So that brings us to the second question then. What is the purpose of suffering within the believer's life? We understand sin is the, is the core reason. We understand it's the root problem, if you will. We, we understand that, and I just even explain that in light of righteousness and suffering for righteousness' sake. But look at verse 18 again. For I reckon, Paul said, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now let's read it without the italicized words here for a moment. Paul says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time not worthy with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So here he's contrasting present suffering with the glory, eternal glory. And that's what he's talking about here, eternal glory, not just present temporal uh, glory that will be revealed in this life, but glory that is revealed beyond this life. So there are two truths within this verse which demand our attention in relation to answering the question, what is the purpose of suffering within the believer's life? First, or number A, or letter A, God works through suffering to reveal his glory. I mean, that's clearly stated here in this passage in reality and throughout Scripture. Paul stated that there is glory which shall be revealed in us. Now remember, Paul's already stated in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. If you go back just a moment, he said, And if children, then heirs of heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. So again, there's this inseparable link that Paul makes between suffering and glorification. And what is glorification? It's that of glory being revealed. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a glory which shall be revealed in us, but he's talking, he's saying that in contrast to the present sufferings. In contrast to that. So although suffering is a direct result of sin, God uses suffering within the life of the believer to conform us to the image of Christ. Suffering is often one of the means the Lord uses as he teaches us to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul personally experienced this truth as God revealed to Ananias at the time of Paul's conversion. In Acts 9, verses 11 through 16, And the Lord said unto him, unto Ananias, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And there he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, unto Ananias, Go that way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord says, Paul is going to suffer greatly and I'm going to reveal to him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, it was through some of the suffering of Paul that God revealed his life, his strength, and his grace in Paul. And Paul understood. In fact, if you recall in Acts as well, there's an account given where Paul says, and he's speaking to those at Ephesus, I believe the elders at Ephesus, when he is departing from there, meeting with them, and he says, this is the last time I will see you. And he makes a statement. There is one thing I know, that 
I don't know exactly all where I'm going or what all is going to take place other than this. The Spirit has made me clearly aware that I am going to suffer from place to place. (laughs) So Paul knew he was going to suffer. He expected it. It was anticipated. It doesn't mean he enjoyed it in itself, but he understood, and we're going to get to this in a moment, he understood there was a greater purpose of God being accomplished through this. Now, some would say, possibly, or might would make the assumption, that the reason that God says Paul would suffer so greatly for his name's sake is some form of retribution against Saul because he persecuted the church, and therefore God's saying, aha, Paul, I'll show you, and now you'll suffer greatly because you persecuted my church. No, not at all. It's that God is conforming Paul to the image of Christ, and suffering is just a part of that. And Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, but he willingly embraces suffering. So it's through the suffering, as I mentioned, of Paul, God revealed his life, he revealed his strength and his grace in Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, we know the passage. Paul writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then states, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory, notice he says this, glory in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Notice Paul says, or God tells Paul here, grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, and Paul says, I glory then infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God revealed his grace, he revealed his strength, and he revealed the very power of Christ through the sufferings of Paul. So Paul's sufferings, whatever form in which they came, they were used by the Lord to magnify the person and the provision of Jesus Christ within Paul's life. Had Paul not suffered in the manner in which he did, he would not have learned to depend upon the sufficiency of Jesus, which means that the glory of God, as demonstrated in and through the person of Christ, would have not been experienced by Paul personally, nor demonstrated in the life of Paul personally, as it was. So it's through this suffering. Think of this for a moment. Had Paul not suffered as he did, even in relation to his writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or 12, then we would not have this passage of Scripture to which has been referenced, which has been dependent on this truth, that in our weakness, his strength is being perfected, that his grace is sufficient no matter what the need, no matter what the problem, no matter what the trouble, no matter what the trial, that Christ is all sufficient and that he faithfully demonstrates his power in and through our insufficiencies. And what a glorious truth this is. And how do we know that? Because Paul suffered for the cause of Christ. And Paul is a testimony to this truth as God himself testified it would be so. So we see that God works through suffering to reveal his glory. But then there's another thought that is is akin to this. We see as well from verse 18, and that is that the future glory which God is working in suffering is far greater than the present suffering. And again, Paul says in verse 18, For I reckon of of Romans chapter 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, so now he's talking about that present suffering at this very moment, Paul says, it is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So here's what Paul is saying. Not only that God works through suffering to reveal his glory, but that the future glory, the eternal glory, which God is working in the present suffering is far greater. Not, suffering is not even worthy to be compared to this because of how great. Or might we say this because of how excellent, how superior the glory which God is working is compared to the inferiority of the suffering, no matter how great it may be. Now, before you think again and say, well, yeah, but Paul just didn't understand how bad this suffering would be. Might I remind you again of the book of Acts where Paul, the Lord says directly to Ananias concerning Paul, I will show him, Paul, what mediocre, what minuscule, what marginalized, 
What small, what little, what insignificant. No, what does he say? What great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we know the testimony of the life of Paul, according to the Scriptures, that he suffered tremendously. And ultimately, we believe, according to historical record, that he was martyred for the cause of Christ. That's pretty serious suffering. And yet Paul embraced this. He didn't flee from it. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting as we've studied in the past through some of these epistles that as Paul prayed, even in prison, while imprisoned, Paul did not pray, oh, pray that I get deliverance. No, he prays for the furtherance of the gospel. He prays that even those who would despitefully, as we've seen in Philippians chapter 1, those who would despitefully uh, uh, preach Christ, the same Jesus, the true gospel, yet do so out of contention or envy or strife, He says, even those who would do so deceptively. He said, if Christ is preached, if the purity of the gospel is proclaimed, then I rejoice even when it's to my own detriment. So Paul doesn't say, oh, pray I get out of here. Just pray I get out of here. I I, I have to stop and say, I think in most cases, we live in in a society, in a culture, even religiously speaking, within the church society in America today, in which... I venture to say, and I speak of this even myself, were it not for grace of God and Him giving me truly an eternal perspective, I have to say I probably would be asking people to pray that God get me out of prison. And I'm not saying that in itself is wrong, because obviously that's not what we would desire, and it's a hindrance from our viewpoint. But notice, Paul does not ask for this. Paul says, look, now he, he, he may mention deliverance and such, yes, but that's not the focal point of his prayer. His desire and his prayer is for the furtherance of the gospel, that God be glorified, the gospel be proclaimed, and, and no matter what his situation is. And so there's a great commitment and desire here within the life of Paul that is demonstrated. And so the future glory, letter B, the future glory which God is working is far greater than the present suffering. God has predetermined to conform us to the image of his Son. And it's through suffering the Lord reminds us that he is doing a greater work through such suffering than the suffering itself. God help us, me included in this, to understand that when we suffer for the cause of Christ, when we are opposed for the gospel's sake, that God is going to use that as a means to humbly submit us to His purpose being performed as He is conforming us to the image of His Son within our own lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul said this. And again, this is somewhat, there's some irony in this to some degree. Surely you must see this after having read Acts already. When Paul says to those Corinthians, for our light affliction. Now, Paul is calling this light affliction. But in Acts, God says, I will show Paul what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So what God is saying is great suffering Paul now is saying, oh, this light affliction. So is Paul just speaking to impress the Corinthians? Absolutely not. Here's the difference. Paul did suffer greatly. We know that to be the case. And if Paul, Paul would even testify to no doubt that he suffered great things. He even goes through a testimony of explaining some of the things he suffered. Did he not in the book of Acts? And how that he suffered through the shipwreck and he was tortured, he was beaten, he was left for dead. I mean, he suffered all of these things. So Paul was not, again, marginalizing the suffering that took place in his life. It's simply that Paul had an eternal perspective concerning life and suffering. And so the future glory far outweighs the present suffering. He says, for our light affliction, notice what he says, which is but for a moment. This is showing you Paul's perspective. He says, and Paul's not saying, okay, well, I may suffer today, but tomorrow I'll be over. No, he's saying the moment is not a specific period of time within Paul's life. The moment of which Paul speaks is the entirety of his life or the remainder of his life. But Paul understood that the remainder of my life, no matter how long that time period may be, it's only a moment. And he recognized that due to an eternal perspective that he possessed. So he goes on to say, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. How can you look to that which is not seen? One word. Faith. It's believing God even when we can't see it. It's still knowing it's true and believing God, believing what He has said. And here Paul is saying, all this suffering is just for a moment's time. For the rest of my life I will suffer, but that's just a brief moment. And then he says, and it works a far, God is working a far greater eternal weight of glory. While we look, how can Paul say this? Because he was not looking at the present suffering as though this is the purpose and meaning and the definition of his entire existence. But rather he's saying, oh, this is part of the working of my glorification and sanctification, by the way, and glorification as God is conforming me to the image of his Son, which is an eternal work with eternal benefit and eternal glory. So he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but on that things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But that which is not seen is eternal. And what is Paul looking to? Not the things which are seen, temporal, but the things which are not seen, which are eternal. So Paul here possessed genuinely an eternal perspective. Hear me, if and when we live life with an eternal perspective, it causes us to view everything differently in this temporal life in which we live. Suffering was present with Christ himself, and he did no wrong. But let me ask you again. Now, we know ultimately in the eternal redemptive purpose of God, we recognize why Christ had to suffer. We understand that the justifier remains just in Romans chapter 3. We understand that, that God did satisfy His wrath upon sin, sinful man, as He exhausted that wrath upon His Son on our behalf, that we might now be freely redeemed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We understand that. But let's go back to the fundamentals here for just a moment. Jesus, who did no wrong, who is the very righteousness of God in the flesh, personified, the very holiness of God in the flesh, the very glory of God in the flesh, the divine expression of God in the flesh. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily in the flesh. So here he is. And yet he suffered. Why? Now, you can, I know you'll say, oh, for me. No, I'm not asking you what he was accomplishing. Why was it literally that Jesus suffered? Not to do something. Why? We've answered this all last week. I answered it this morning already. Sin. Not his sin, but Sin. Had men not been sinful, would they have crucified the very God of glory? Had, sin not, had men not been sinful, would they have self-righteously promoted themselves while rejecting and mocking the Son of God? Are you following this? Now, we know God's purpose was being accomplished in this. We get that, but I'm asking the reason. If Christ had come into a sinless world, would he have suffered? No, men would have received him to be who he was. The reason men rejected him is because they are sinful, full of sin. And so sin is the very reason that Jesus himself literally suffered. Not his sin, nothing he did wrong, but because of sin itself and the sin of man. In fact, ultimately, why is it God sent Jesus to die? Because of it's unto his glory is the ultimate purpose and reason that God would be glorified. But what was the means by which God was going to be glorified through sending his son? that Christ might offer himself a sacrifice for sin. <laughs> a sacrifice for sin. So we understand Christ suffered. He did no wrong. But if he who did no wrong suffered, 
how much more so should we expect to suffer? We must remember that although Jesus was sinless, he also suffered because of sin. And it was not for his own sin, of course, but for ours, our sin that he suffered. And if Christ suffered, we must also suffer if we are to be conformed to his image. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. What steps specifically is Peter's referring to here? Suffering. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. An example? An example of what? An example of one who is living in the righteousness of God, being the righteousness of God personified. And because of that righteousness, he suffered. Hence, the example is live in righteousness, and you suffer as he suffered due to righteousness. He goes on to say that you should follow in his steps, or follow his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Committing himself to God the Father. Do you notice what he says? Here's the steps we follow. Did no sin. No guile was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself in turn to he who judges righteously, God the Father. And the suffering came from the righteousness of Christ himself following in the will of God the Father. So these are the steps we follow. So we should expect suffering, Peter is saying, just as Jesus said. And Peter suffered greatly for the cause of Christ as well. And so when you think about this as as from Peter's perspective, what he is saying, Christ suffered, leaving us an example, and we are to follow his steps. What are his steps? He did no guile. He did no sin. He did not revile. He did not threaten. He suffered patiently, committing himself to the Father rather than seeking retribution. He says, and he did all this for righteousness' sake because there was no sin in him. So these are the steps we're to follow as followers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, suffering becomes a reality within our lives because of righteousness. Let, let, me, let me say it to you like this, okay? Because this could be greatly misunderstood. Someone could think, well, that's kind of masochistic, isn't it? You're talking about you want to suffer? No, I don't want to suffer. That's not the point. Neither was that Paul's point. It's not that we want to inflict harm upon our physical bodies. It's not that we love to be in suffering and persecution. But this is about to get really real here, okay? So just hang on for just a second. This must be the reality. We must love righteousness more than we despise and detest suffering. That is really the bottom line. I don't want suffering, but do I desire righteousness? And if I desire righteousness, then the result of that is going to be suffering. But if I despise suffering so much so that that is where my focus is, if I'm looking to the present temporal sufferings and the threat of suffering for the gospel's sake and the cause of Christ, and that brings fear within my heart or life so much so to the degree that I say I don't want to suffer at all. And if that's where I live, then I will escape suffering to some degree, but I also am rejecting righteousness altogether. So the question is not, do you want to suffer? See, that's kind of where it gets focused many times, I'm afraid. And we don't want to suffer. I'll tell you, I don't like suffering. I don't like to hurt. I don't like to be hurt. In any capacity. And if you do, you're weird. I don't like to hurt. I don't like to be hurt in any capacity. But that's not the question. See, if I am willing to do anything to refrain from suffering, that means I am more interested in the present temporal life that I live than I am the eternal glory of God and his righteousness being fulfilled in and through my life and glorification even. And hence the reality is if we really boil it down, every believer desires righteousness. Hence, genuine believers are willing to suffer, even embrace the suffering when it's for righteousness sake because it's not, we don't, it's not that we have a, 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 
a desire for suffering, or it's not that we, in some strange form, enjoy suffering, but it's that we love righteousness. And in comparison, what God is accomplishing through his righteousness being demonstrated through our lives, the glorification that will be the eternal glory that's going to be revealed, what is this suffering to compare to that? That's exactly what Paul is referencing. And Peter as well. So while suffering is a direct result of original sin and sometimes our actual sins, just as the suffering of Christ resulted in our salvation, our suffering results in our sanctification and ultimately our glorification. God uses all things, including suffering, to fulfill His purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son. And Lord willing, we're going to revisit this portion of Romans next week again to answer our final question regarding this matter of suffering, and that is how does God use suffering in the believer's life? Let me conclude with this. Suffering is good in that it drives us to depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ and His strength. Suffering is good in that it draws genuine believers together in the purity of fellowship. You look at the purity of the church. Do you know when you see the church in its purest form? When there was great suffering for the righteousness sake. When there was great tribute. That's always been the case. Third, suffering delivers us from the entrapment of living with a worldly attitude and view of this life, a temporal perspective. If, if we suffer for righteousness sake and we're going to not only endure it joyfully, if you will, but we're going to survive and we're going to embrace it, then we cannot do so while having a focus on a temporal life which we live. It's impossible. You will reject all suffering at all costs if you're focused on the here and now, right, at this present. Fourth, suffering demonstrates that we have identified in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So understanding these truths about suffering, could we not agree that it is excellent? It is superior to suffer for the cause of Christ. It is superior to suffer for Jesus' sake than to not suffer. Because to not suffer means that we are focused on the temporal, which is inferior. Therefore, the superior thing, the excellent thing, is to acknowledge and embrace the suffering that is identified with righteousness. That is identified with Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16, Peter writes, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And the word happier is blessed. Peter's saying, if you suffer, you're blessed. See, here's, here's what you have to remember. Listen, please listen. The eternal perspective is diametrically opposed to the temporal perspective. The temporal perspective is, oh, I'm blessed of God. I'm so blessed things are going my way. You hear people say these things. I'm blessed. Oh, God has blessed me so much. I have this. I have that. God gave me this. God gave me. And we should give God praise for what he has done, even physically speaking, yes. But Peter was not living with a temporal perspective. And he's saying, oh, by the way, if you suffer, guess what? You're blessed. That's backwards thinking for us, isn't it? But the reason it's backwards thinking is because we are looking at it backwards. <laughs> He says, happy are you, blessed are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Verse 15, listen to what Peter says. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You understand what sanctify means here? You say, how, you, how can you purify God? No, you're not purifying God. Sanctified means set apart. When God sanctifies us, you know what he's doing? He's setting us apart. When we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit in regeneration, what has God done? He has set us apart unto himself, from sin, from ungodliness, from the bondage of wickedness and Satan and sin and evil and all that. We're set free, delivered from that, set apart unto God. Sanctifying God in your hearts has nothing to do with the purity of God himself in the sense of what we are doing for God. It has to do with what God is literally doing in us. We are recognizing that God is set apart from all others. And when we recognize that and we understand that we suffer for the cause of Christ and we are submitted to the purpose of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is genuine, purest form of worship, then we're saying, oh, God is set apart, hence I am set apart, and if suffering is part of it, so be it. 
Blessed am I to suffer for His sake, who is sanctified unto Himself. And He needs to be sanctified in our hearts, set apart in our hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your good living or lifestyle in Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Peter goes on to say, Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, blessed are ye. For the spirit of glory, notice that term, the spirit of what? Glory resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part... He is glorified. Why? Because God is glorifying us through this process. So God is glorified through our suffering when we suffer for righteousness' sake, which is to suffer for the gospel as we identify in the suffering, the death, and the resurrected life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, naturally, physically speaking, I want to shun suffering. I don't want to suffer. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Will I compromise truth? Will I compromise righteousness? Will I compromise submission to God out of a great hatred for suffering? Or might we say it like this? Oh, I despise suffering. I don't want to suffer. I don't enjoy suffering. But my hatred for suffering is nothing compared to my love for righteousness and my love for Jesus Christ. Really, this is the question. Do we love Christ and identity in Him and righteousness and truth, is that love for Him greater than our hatred for suffering? That's the question. And you don't need to answer that for me. And I don't need to answer that for you because here's the reality of it. Our lives will provide the answer.